0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, April the 5th, 2023. One of the great issues these days is how do we tell the story of the environment and particularly the crisis of the environment? Yesterday, we did a show with a Cornell University historian, Aaron Sachs, on the importance of dark comedy. He says we need to uh, make jokes, essentially, about the climate crisis, because that's the only way it will actually resonate with anyone. Others suggest we read books. Martin Puchner has been on the show, professor of comparative literature at Harvard. He has a new book. Literature for a changing planet. Other academics talk about simply telling effective stories, but of course, effective stories for adults. Uh, Bathsheba Dumuth, for example, a very distinguished historian, has written a magnificent book, Floating Coast, an incredibly eclectic and moving history and environmental history of the Bering Strait. All this is for adults. How do you tell, though, the story of the crisis of the environment, of the trees? to children. My guest today is Brian Selznick. He's one of uh, America's leading maker of children's books. He's written all sorts of amazing books. Um, He doesn't need much of an introduction from me, but he has a new book out called Big Tree, which perhaps I'm putting words into his mouth or perhaps seeds into his mouth, but it's a book about telling The story of the crisis of trees and the environment to seven to 12 year olds. Brian is joining us from uh, one of his homes in Brooklyn, uh, New York. Welcome, Brian. Um, Am I being accurate? Are you in the business, at least with Big Tree, of trying to tell this story of our environmental crisis to seven to 12 year olds?
1: I think it's, hi, first of all, it's so nice to be here with you. And and I would say it's entirely fair to say that's the upshot of this book. But the intention was just to tell a story about characters that kids could relate to, that people could uh, find themselves in in some fashion. And then the fact that this particular story is very deeply tied into the fate of the entire planet. <laughs> Uh, told through the story of these uh, two little sycamore seeds who are themselves trying to find a safe place to grow, uh,
0: is it, it would make me very happy if that was uh, what people took from the book. Brian, when I came across your book and was thrilled that we were going to have the opportunity to talk, I, I thought of a conversation I did with another scientist, well, not another scientist, a very different kind of writer and scholar to yourself, Karen Backer. She has a, a new book out. Um, on digital technology that would allow us to talk to trees. That's quite Mm -hmm. literal. Your book, in a sense, enables us and particularly children to imagine talking to trees. Is that fair? Is that what Big Tree is about? Our ability to talk to nature and for nature, of course, to talk back to us?
1: Yeah, I I think a big part of the book uh, is about listening, right? Like The characters within the story have to learn to listen. There are Voices that are coming to some of the characters that seem to be calling them to some kind of action that they can't quite figure out for a a big part of the story and This idea that we don't listen right that that it is really really hard to listen Because so many of us feel like we already know and and this idea that in fact we need to be open, we need to be, list- to, to be listening, and to be uh, fluid in a lot of ways, I think is, is something that is very valuable for all of us and is very much about what the book opens up. So, in a way, like we're, yes, we're literally listening to trees as we're reading the story because the, the, I- the intention of the story was to write a story about nature from nature's point of view. So, if plants really were the main characters, what would they be saying? What would they be doing? You know, I, I, And so this idea that that plants and trees can talk is, is, or at least communicate is the scientific underpinning for why my characters literally talk, right? So everything in, in Big tree is based in some kind of science. And so that idea that we can l- listen, to listen in on these characters and maybe make a connection to the natural world is great but of course I'm writing you know I'm writing about two little sycamore seeds but of course what I'm really writing about is us and and so it's it's people that I'm writing about even though in big tree the people are two little sycamore trees and uh, two little sy- sycamore seeds and fern plants and cattails and seaweed and uh talking
0: uh plants brian when i did the show with karen Backer, i imagined if we if we could indeed talk to nature nature would respond and make us feel horribly guilty about what we <laughs> what we have done and what we continue to do to nature when one writes a book for and and i say seven to twelve year olds because um on uh, your book is published by scholastic and It suggests it's for 7 to 12-year-olds, but of course, we're all 7 to 12-year-olds in different ways. Um, When you're writing for kids, for 7 to 12-year-olds, I assume that the issue of of guilt and responsibility is less central, perhaps because kids Mm -hmm. are less guilty and also because those feelings don't always resonate as much with kids, or am I wrong?
1: No, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about it specifically from that direction because the the aspect for me that was central was the idea of hope, right? Because because things feel so impossible, like so much of this conversation about saving the environment, about doing something to help the world feels like we as individual people can't like what could we do, like what could I do to, to help make a difference? And I think the, the, one of the reasons I write is to try to figure out ways to help myself feel better. And, and, and I'm aware that my audience is mostly kids. I tend to write about children. So I think that the audience who will read those books are about the same age as the main characters. But I very much love the fact that I, I know that people of all ages read a lot of my books and I am very appreciative of that. So, so for me, it's, it's children and adults Feeling what I tend to feel is a fear of hopelessness and what is it I can do and what is it that I can remind myself that offers me hope because I I, I need to believe that there's still something we can do. And by writing a story about these two little sycamore seeds who figure out something they can do to, to literally help save the world, it's it hopefully in some way will resonate with us that like, okay, we can figure out things we can do on an individual basis that connects with our immediate community, which then keeps connecting out and out and out and out until we look at the real community that we're a part of, which is the planet Earth. That's, you know, we're all part of that community.
0: It's all part of agency. Your publisher um, said uh, at Scholastic, you've worked with her for many years, She believes that Big Tree will speak to readers because the weight of the world is on the next generation's shoulders. It's really a reckoning, and they feel it subliminally. This book leaves us with a tremendous sense of hope, promise, and power that even small acts make a difference. You're a maker of children's books, Brian, rather than an author, a formal author. You're also an illustrator and an artist. You've done an amazing amount of work. Shameful for most of us writers. I don't quite know how you've done it all um in terms of this uh, this idea of um feeling a book sub- subliminally how, how do you do that as an artist as opposed to just a straight author mm. well i mean i think i think the key for me is finding
1: characters who i relate to who then i believe the readers will relate to and once you have that key that's what opens the door and allows you in to any world like it it's understanding the the person in a, in a, in a lot of ways that's the, one of the magical things for me about stories and, and especially books is it allows us both to see ourselves which is very very important and it allows us to see others people who we never could have imagined uh, lo- you know what their lives might. Might, might, would be like. And that, for me, is is really equally uh, as important. And so finding the characters uh, in Big Tree who and themselves have a struggle figuring out what they're supposed to be doing to make themselves safe, to figure out what this voice is that's coming in that's that seems to be calling them to some kind of action. Like, how did those two sides of these two characters reconcile with each other, with time, with the earth, with the uh, specific adventure that they're on, so that when the reader is reading the story, right? We don't want to be lectured to. We don't want to be. We don't want um, a story to feel didactic. I think even when we're reading nonfiction, we don't want to feel like that. We want to feel like we're being invited in. And the the and and maybe especially because I, I work with children, uh, and for children, I really work for children. It's imagining a way into the, the narrative. And so once we're inside and once we discover a connection, hopefully, to Merwin and Louise and the world around them, we then find that there are other characters that we are compelled by, other situations we didn't know about, that in, in Big Tree are all inspired by science. So at the end of the book, there's a big uh, afterward about all of the actual science that you've actually just learned. Like you, you don't know that you just learned about the mycorrhizal system uh, that is the you know fungi that connect all the trees in a forest, because what you were reading about was little tiny mushrooms called ambassadors who would show up and tell the trees what was going on around the forest. And you meet these little characters called scientists who are actually in the water doing research uh, in the story, but in real life they're called foraminifera and their little fossils connect, collect a carbon and that's how we know about climate change today. So, so it, in the story, embedded in the story are all of this all these all this information. and of course we know that the real way to help children and to help the future and to help the world is through knowledge right? It's through, it's through education and it's through facts, but you can get at facts in lots of different ways. And so that's, that's one of the sort of stealthy things that I hope that Big Tree would do. But again, the main concern is I hope, you know, people enjoy the story of Merwin and Louise.
0: Right. And just to be clear, Merwin and Louise are the two sycamore (laughs) seeds who are trying to save the world while saving, while finding a safe harbor for themselves. On, On the one hand, this book uh, according at least to one of the reviews was millions of years in the making <laughs> in the sense that it's a result of the uh, physical evolution of the planet on the other hand um, it's very timely and um, very much bound up with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Spielberg I know uh, he, he's very much bound up uh, in the making of this uh, Steven Spielberg who you've worked with in the past what's Spielberg's role in a Big Tree, Brian? Uh, Steven Spielberg quite
1: literally planted this seed. He called me and invited me to come to Los Angeles to meet him and the co-producer Chris Melodandri to write a movie for him uh, based on I- an idea that he had. So he's the one who approached me and said, I, I wanna tell a story about nature from nature's point of view. Uh, because I've never seen that before. And and I'm sure in his mind he was thinking about the the crisis that the planet was facing, and he he just wanted the story to be about plants. He originally had imagined the story being set in the Devonian era, a couple hundred million years before the dinosaurs, when the world was mostly covered with plants. But I did a little further research and discovered that the world was mostly covered with ferns, and there was very little biodiversity because there were so few insects. And so I proposed that we move the story to a couple hundred million years later to the end of the Cretaceous period. So that by that point, there was full biodiversity in the forests because I wanted to set the story in a world that looked like our world. So that when we got to the end of the story, we could go out into nature and into our world and feel a connection between the two. But I was able to develop this uh, and it was originally a screenplay Uh, for what was going to be an animated movie and i got to meet with him about four times and talk about the story which was really incredibly thrilling and then the pandemic hit and it became clear very quickly that like many things the movie was never going to happen so i proposed that we make the story into a book that he give me the rights to the story and allow me to make it into a book i wasn't going to do any drawings when it was going to be a movie it was going to be professional animators we were thinking about putting faces on the seeds but when it was time to make it into a book, and I got and they very enthusiastically gave me permission, um, I realized that the pictures should follow the same rule about science that I had given myself for the story, which is everything has to be scientific. And the, just the fact is, seeds don't have faces. So the the seeds in Big Tree are just seeds. You know, they are slightly anthropomorphized because sycamore seeds in real life look like little spikes with fluff, but that fluff is there to help propel them through the air. And so making the fluff become a little bit like arms and legs or hands that reach, uh, fit within the type of anthropomorphization I was going to allow myself to do for the book. But in, in many ways, uh, this book wouldn't exist without Steven Spielberg. And I was very, very uh, proud that when I finally finished the book, uh, he you know had asked to see it when I was finished. And uh, he and Chris Melodandry called me on the phone to tell me how much they, they loved it. So that, that really meant a lot that I felt like I was able to finally present them with something that felt
0: complete. The book has received um, a, lot of, a lot of positive uh, responses. Uh, one from a starred review from Publisher Weekly. But Kirkus, interestingly enough, liked the book, but they thought that uh, Spielberg, or what they call Spielberg's sentimentality, um had infected it and I use that word that's my word I don't think they use infection um is there a degree of sentimentality I don't know if you looked at the the Kirkus review uh Brian do you think that um that 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 that's that Spielbergian if there's such a thing as sentimentality is that the thing that um might define the book for some that's a strength for others it's a weakness I think that, begs the question about
1: what sentimentality means and what our connection to emotion in storytelling is and and i think what was interesting about that review was that it was about it was a bad review of steven spielberg and yeah well you
0: know what reviews are like they're always reviewing something else everyone has their own agenda especially exactly like
1: people i get it people have their agendas but one of the things that i thought was interesting about the Fablemans. Uh, Spielberg's movie about his childhood. Yeah, and which his I liked, childhood. I thought it
0: was a good film. A lot of people don't like it.
1: Yeah, no, I really, really loved it. And I thought what was most fascinating about it was that it was actually about Spielberg's discovery of the impact that movies can have on an audience. And, and the first and most profoundly affected audience member he ever had was his own mother, and not to give anything mm. away, but there's a very, very uh, pivotal moment. And, and in a way, seeing and experiencing what movies can do to an audience, and again, starting with his mother, and it wasn't a positive thing that, that he discovered with his mother, but it was so deep and it it changed everything in his and her life so profoundly that in a way, what I saw over the rest of the movie, and then if you look at the rest of his career, was a a a a wish a desire a drive to try to connect with audiences on that deep profound level and 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 i think whatever you think of spielberg the 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 ability to connect with a mass audience on a very very deep profound level okay i know we're taping that was my um doorbell can i just pause for a moment of course all right, don't go anywhere because I was onto something there, I think. <laughs> hey, come on in. All right, sorry about that. And hopefully we'll be able to cut this together so that um, it sounds coherent. Um, can I just pick up with- uh, Of course, uh, yeah, go back
0: to where you were. Go back to Spielberg. Yeah, so, so uh,
1: Spielberg's ability to connect very profoundly with a mass audience on a, on a deeply emotional level, I think is uh, where a real uh, essence of his genius lies. And so getting the chance to talk with him directly and to be in the presence of someone who understands story so deeply, understands emotion so deeply, and really, really understands audiences and figuring out ways in which that kind of visionary can mesh with the type of stories that I tell, right? Because one of, one of the things I said to him when he finished reading the book and called me to tell me how much he loved the book was, well, he finished and he told me how much he loved it. And I, and I, said, I said, can I ask you a question? I've never asked you this all these years we've been working together why did you think of me for this book? I, I, I don't write stories about plants. Like what made you think of me? And, and he said something very nice about my ability to tell stories and to connect with characters. But I, I pressed him a little harder. And I said, but I didn't think I could write this story in the beginning. Why did you think I could write it? And he said, that's my job. He said, actors say this to me all the time they say, why did you think of me for this role? It's so different from anything I would have put myself in. It's so different from anything else I've played in the past. And and Spielberg talked about how he sees potential in people, right? And so having that focus on you and having that belief in you, even though he, again, he never said anything like this to me during the process, but you're aware that that Steven Spielberg is able to reach out to whoever he wants to reach out to. He's able to work with whoever well, he wants to He's more than welcome,
0: be. Brian, if he's watching this. He's more than welcome to, to reach out for me, all right? <laughs> Steven, I'll, I'll do you a, a screenplay anytime you want. Two co- two more quick questions. I know you've got to run, uh, Brian. The first is, that, as you say, you're a maker of children's books. When people pick this book up, they're going to look at it, and they're going to read it. Wonderful art, wonderful text. But you also have an audio book out written by... No less than a certain Meryl Streep. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously everyone would love to have Meryl Streep read their audiobook, but do you feel that the audiobook in a way competes with you as a maker, an artist of children's books?
1: Well, I also made the audiobook. Like the audiobook was part of Oh, okay.
0: So you sort of you you helped create what she yeah. did. Yeah. So so what happened was. So uh, you were slamming it again. You worked with Spielberg and then you worked with Streep.
1: <laughs> well, when I was writing it as a movie, my, my secret fantasy was that Meryl Streep would voice the earth in the story, right? So I had had her voice in my head for a very long time. And when Paul Gagney, who produces the audiobooks for Scholastic, uh, called me to say that they wanted to make an audiobook of Big Tree, uh, which itself is very challenging because, you know, as we talked about, Big Tree is mostly pictures. Uh, so how do you make an audiobook version of that, right? So it's it's not the book. The audiobook is an adaptation that I wrote of my book that fills in with text some of the picture sequences, but then takes out some text that's in the book that we could replace with sound effects and pictures and uh, 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 music and things like that. And Paul asked me who I would like to have narrate, and I said the one person I'd really like to ask is Meryl Streep. And so I, I sent her the book with a note about why I wanted her to read it and just what an honor it would be just, just to have her read it. And it turned out she's also an environmental activist herself, and she loved the book and said yes. And so I got to spend this incredible day with her and Paul and a few other folks in this audio, uh, you know, booth. As she read the book, and she does twenty-five different voices for the characters, she she tells both the incredible sweeping story of the scope of the uh, giant scale of the story, but also these incredibly intimate little tiny characters who she's voicing, uh, and it was it was really extraordinary. So I so I don't think of it as competition. I think of it as along the lines of the idea that people take in stories lots of different ways now. There are so many ways to 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 get a narrative. And so the idea that right now, after everything that this story went through in so many moments when it looked like it was never going to reach the world, that there is the physical book, which is, you know, which is the, the thing that I had been working on for so long. But then there's this other version of it that I also was very central to working on that has this extraordinary, connection with with Meryl Streep now, um, it really is exciting. And, they, and it feels like they go together in certain ways.
0: Finally, you've got two minutes, Brian. I know you've got to run. Um, for people watching, you have some trees behind you. I've already mentioned the um, Karen Bakker uh, interview we did about our ability to talk to trees. We've also had many shows on trees, one with Kinari Webb, for example, written a book, Guardian of the Trees. Another recently with my friend Tiffany Schleins, written a book about tree rings. Are you a tree lover? What is it about trees, finally, Brian, that that uh, drove you, if that's the right word, uh, to, to, to this project? Is there something metaphysical about them, something religious? I mean, many, many of our uh, animistic uh, religions were built around trees.
1: Yeah, I, I think so many of us have had some kind of beautiful experience in and around trees. When I was a kid, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, but there was a little patch of untouched woods behind my house. And that moment of stepping from your manicured backyard into the wildness of the woods, where everything changes, the sound changes, the smell changes, the feeling in the air changes. I you know, I didn't know if there were jaguars anywhere. Um, you know, that that sense that you are stepping into another world. And because trees live in a different time than we do, they, they experience time differently. I think when we give ourselves over to them, we touch time in a different way. And I, I think that affects us whether we are aware of it or not.